We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskiman, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Patrick Jean. Patrick is a student researcher from the Department of Business here at McEwen. Thank you so much for being with us here on the show today, Patrick. You're welcome. Um, so Patrick, tell us a little bit about uh, about your research. Um, so when I came to McEwen, um, I knew I wanted to do something with renewable energy. And um, I became really interested in geothermal energy. Um, I started going to a lot of conferences. I started meeting people in the industry. Um, and in about my third year, or about halfway through my second year, um, I got approached about doing an honors degree. Um, the honors degree um, is allows me to do research in an area that uh, I have a passion for. And since I was developing a passion for geothermal energy, I thought it would be uh, a great subject to, to pick. Um, I also come from a small town in Alberta, and I've seen a lot of small towns in Alberta um, that have uh, dwindled and lost a lot of economic opportunities over the years for many different reasons. And I wanted to tie that into my research as well. So when I did my research, I focused on how geothermal heat applications and systems could help with rural development in small towns in Alberta. Hmm. So... How does that tie into um, like like where did you, where did your fascination with geothermal energy come from? Like I, just because, <laughs> forgive me, but I I think business and I think like I don't think of that. That's not the first thing I think of. So so tell us about how that sort of transpired. Um, so right now in the business world, uh, a lot of people are um, focused or they're looking for opportunities to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and so renewable energy is one of the main ways that people can do that. Um, and so there's lots of different developments in solar and wind and stuff like that that are happening across the world. Um, but geothermal has some uh, ties with uh, the oil and gas industry, um, both technology and um, the way that it's developed. Um, and so that's kind of what brought me to it. It kind of, it was that one technology um, in that space that um, I see an opportunity to put uh, oil and gas workers back to work and something familiar with um, little to no retraining. Right? Whereas moving into something like solar or wind or something like that might be more difficult for people who come from a drilling background. Um, but people who come from that background have an easier transition right into geothermal um, because they're drilling basically, you know, it's the same drilling technologies and stuff, but the drill holes are just a lot bigger. So geothermal drilling holes are about twice the size of a normal oil and gas drilling hole. Fun fact. Fun fact of the day. <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm sure you'll hear more as we talk. <laughs> as we go through it. Yeah. So uh, how did you start? How did you start with this research idea? Like what, what did you, what was the first step? Um, so through the honors uh, program, um, I took some courses on advanced qualitative and quantitative research methodologies. Um, I did a few research uh, studies through those courses to kind of hone my skills um, and then you do a course on developing, um, basically just putting in, um, uh, sorry, what you call it, my uh, proposal. So there's a course specifically for my proposal. 
Um, so it's a whole course, a whole semester, just developing that thesis proposal. Um, and it took some time. Um, I wasn't exactly sure. The thesis question changed probably a dozen times from when I originally thought of it to what it came out to in the end. Um, and you know, it's it's a process. Right? It's just it was it was definitely a process, and it took a lot of support from faculty and having good faculty support and good faculty advisors along the way made made a world of difference for sure. Yeah, no kidding. It's always important that you have that support because when you're doing a research project, you kind of can feel really consumed by just that research and feel kind of alone, maybe. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. Especially since at that particular time, um, I was the only student in the School of Business taking the honors program. So I didn't have any classmates or anything to rely on, um, which is a bit of an anomaly. Usually there's a, a small group of maybe, you know, three, four or five or something like that. Um, we did, we're trying to, to change that and trying to increase that enrollment rate in the honors program at McEwen School of Business uh, for those purposes because it, it is really uh, an amazing program and it's uh, really helped me develop uh, a lot and uh, um, it's going to help me take, take me to the next level of my education. So what, what uh, tell us about that, that journey in itself, like what, obviously you've had a very pleasant experience with your research here at McEwen, um, you felt a lot of support and stuff, so how has that helped you improve and get to the next step to where you need to be? Um, so I knew that when coming into McEwen, um, I would have to do something to differentiate myself. So um, I'm a mature student. Um, I've had some work experience, so a co-op program might not be as beneficial for me. Um, but I was looking for an opportunity to kind of help differentiate myself and to kind of be able to hit the ground running per se, uh, coming out of university to just to take me up to, um, as close to the next level. Um, I do eventually want to go and get a master's degree. Um, and, um, this was kind of, uh, the, the, a path into a master's degree. Right. Um, it's an easy, easier way in because you're already learning the skills that a master's degree requires you to develop, um, but in a bachelor's program. So, um, yeah, I, it's it's been a really, really, really good program for that purpose because it's 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 that next step. Um, like I was I've tell people it's or I've recently discovered that it, it's if you've gone to an IB program in high school, it's very similar to an IB program in high school. Where you get to do your own, you have, um, it's a little bit more work, but it's more about the flexibility than the academic pursuit uh, itself, right? So you get to follow your passion uh, more than focusing on higher grades, right? And it turns out when you focus on your passion, you end up with really high grades. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're enjoying what you do and you're really focusing in on it. It's the grades come after yeah, <laughs> and they exactly. usually come high. <laughs> <laughs> and they do, they do. I've had a, a lot of praise for my research so far, and um, I'm, uh, I, I, I really appreciate uh, what I've been hearing from from faculty and from people who've been reading it in the industry, and um, and that praise is is um, is really good. It's uh, it feels really nice to have. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the actual research. Your your how long has it been ongoing and um, what are some of the things that you've done like in the field? What sort of, uh, you were talking about your courses that you took in qualitative and quantitative research yeah. methods. What, yeah, what methods have you been using, et cetera? Yeah, okay. So um, I did this, 
started with the proposal class in the beginning. Uh, it would have been winter of 2021. Um, so I, and that semester was a full, um, sorry, 2021, 2022. Uh, full, uh, I did a full semester of of my proposal class and getting ready and developing the methodology and stuff like that. Um, we used a qualitative methodology, um, used snowball sampling. So I used people in my network that I knew would have um, some value to add and relied on, on people in the industry. Um, I looked for, there's uh, basically four different categories of people that I, I interviewed. Uh, I talked to service providers, so people in the industry, people who are, you know, um, know the technology and who are out there in the field using it and installing it. Um, then I talked to some end users, so municipalities, businesses, um, uh, things like that, people, homeowners that are have used the technology or could potentially use the, the technology um, in the future. Um, I also talked to some academics who are in the in the field who are uh, helping to try to uh, develop the industry more and uh, get more uh, people in the trades to uh, push the industry kind of on the backside. And then I talked to a few people that are um, that are advocates of the industry. Um, talked to some of the advocates to kind of understand what's missing in the policy side to kind of get it to that next level. So I wanted kind of a fulsome picture um, so that um, we could have a really practical um, paper with this. So my focus was on, on developing something that's practical. Um, so in the fall of 2022 is when I did my interviews. I interviewed uh, 11 people in the industry. Um, some people from um, a variety of um, uh, different agencies and stuff, um, some that want to remain anonymous because of the agencies that they work for um, and in government. And um, there's, I know, um, I get, like I said, people from universities and stuff like that that, that teach stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I happen to have... Um, a connection, um, a, a professor that teaches uh, the sustainability program at Nate um, is a uh, a friend of mine from elementary school. Oh, so he's uh, yeah. He uh, I I was focused on a little bit different systems than he was when I first started my research, but it kind of got enveloped in there, and uh, you know I, I was able to rely on him as a resource and stuff like that. So that. That's been really good. So I've gone through the process. I've done the interviews. I've gone and I've um, basically I've uh, analyzed everything and I've written my final paper for McEwen um, and handed that in and gotten my marks. Um, but I'm still working on the project for um, for publishing right now. So that's the next step I'm looking at taking with the project is making sure that I can develop it to um, hopefully see it in a geothermal publication or a uh, local energy publication here in Alberta that will get me some visibility in the field and help uh, kind of uh, with my reputation as uh, somebody who, uh, you know, understands what they're talking about in that field and who can help industry and who can help government. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And like you said, like just that practical nature of you wanted everything to be practical and your findings were presented that way. So 
what did you find? Are you allowed to talk about it? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. I'll talk a little bit about it. I'll Imagine be, this is your plug. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk a little bit about it. And if anyone wants to hear more about it, I will be uh, presenting at Student Research Day this year um, as well. Um, so I will be getting a little bit more in depth at that time. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, there's two different technologies there's two different kind of technologies there's one that's more of an industrial scale and that's direct use geothermal um, and that tends to rely more on those that drilling technology so big oil rigs big money and big investment um, those kinds of opportunities are going to require uh, more cooperation from governments of all levels but there is opportunities there in Alberta we have uh, some places with some uh, high heat pockets that are um, you know that are looking to develop that uh, that resource um, one of those places I'll, I'll mention and I know they're not anywhere near ready to, to pull the to plug on this, but uh, that I want, I'd like people to kind of keep an eye on in the future is Rainbow Lake, uh, up in the complete northwestern area of the province, um, just isolated um, away from everything, uh, an oil and gas town, um, sitting on uh, a hot spot, Alberta's hottest hot spot, closest to the surface. Um, and they're looking at developing that, that heat field, even. Right. So it's super interesting. I had an interview with their chief administrative officer um, and um, they're, they're, everything they're looking at and they're, um, they're looking at developing the, the heat resource. They're looking at doing it with the First Nations community um, and helping the local First Nations community and moving them out of, of a current um, low-lying flood area that they're living and providing them an area in their community. Um, so, uh, so they're looking at doing some reconciliation along with that. So, uh, all of this is in very, very early talks. So, um, you know, I'm sure that they'll figure this out over the next few years and see how that's going to go, but I'm looking forward to see what's, what's going to happen with that. Um, but there's uh, other communities, the, uh, MD of Greenview, um, has, uh, the Alberta's first geothermal heat system in development. The Alberta number one system um, is being developed there by um, uh, a, uh, in conjunction here with a company in Edmonton called Terrapin Geothermics. Um, um, they've worked here. They, um, one of, they're also one of their um, uh, people that I've talked to, Mark Columbiana, he's a uh, McEwen graduate as well. Oh, okay. And so he, he's in that field as well. So I apologize if I said the name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All good. We won't we won't hold it against you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, and so I'm so there's a lot of activity going on. Um, Ever Technologies out of Calgary um, has done a lot of work there and um, developing the IP, the intellectual property for closed loop geothermal systems, um, and they're working out in. Um, basically all over the world. They're doing developments in the U.S., which is the biggest, the world's largest geothermal uh, resource uh, provider. Um, but they're working in Europe. Uh, they're working in Japan and uh, all over the world um, using that, the intellectual property that they've developed coming from oil and gas and adapting that to um, geothermal energy. So there's a lot of activity going on. There's a lot of money being invested in it right now. Um, last year, in the uh, beginning of 2022, uh, the government of Alberta's Geothermal Resource Development Act came into force. 
Um, and so we've been keeping an eye on, uh, you know, the industry and, and uh, advocates have been keeping an eye on how that's going. And it's been a big improvement to have some structure, some frameworks now for people in the industry. Um, but there's still a few hiccups. There's still a few legislative policies and things that need to be addressed that, um, you know, so there's some recommendations that I'm, I'm looking at and that, that I've made in my, in my research. Um, they're also that have been made by other people, advocates and, and people in the industry um, that, that could help move the, the technology forward and move the industry forward in Alberta. There's a, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, on, there's another aspect as well that's not, that doesn't require as big of, its, of a development, and that's uh, geo-exchange systems. So geo exchange systems, there uh, it's more like what the Blatchford area is set up, right? So it's a um, you can use district heating systems or um, in uh, just more local specific to your home heating systems, and um, they're a little bit different because you're more using the earth as a battery and storing, grabbing a bunch of heat from the summer and storing it in underground in the summer, uh, giving you. Um, it's basically um, what an air conditioner does, but instead of pumping the heat back out in the atmosphere, you'd be pushing the heat back down in a hole and storing it there. And then the heat pump, which is, again, exactly like an air conditioner, gets put into a reverse mode in the wintertime and then takes the heat from the ground and converts it into a heat for your house. So it... Uh, it's, it's a great system. Um, it helps reduce a lot of energy. Um, but again, the upfront costs are still expensive. The, the equipment costs are still expensive. There's some supply chain issues and stuff like that. Um, but all of, all of these things can be addressed with some, some policy changes. And, you know, um, yeah, it's mostly some, some, poli some policy changes from the government on, on a few different levels would really make a big difference on, on, on these technologies being developed here in Alberta. Yeah, no, that's, and, and that's something that I sort of expected to be a boundary and can be a boundary with a lot of newer or like not even newer, but just like things that people are trying to develop to make a change for towards sustainability. It can be tough just, yeah. especially because Alberta is sort of oil capital. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, the biggest tool that uh, both the big projects and the small projects, GeoExchange and the direct use geothermal have helping them right now is a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. right? Everyone in the industry understands that, um, you know, and having that reliable plan for a carbon tax and what's going to happen with that money is a huge, huge um, boon for the industry. So when politicians of any political stripes start talking about making changes to that, people in the industry get nervous, right? Yeah, so, oh, absolutely. Right? So, and it's in... Um, Geothermal also is tied with other industries, which is, is interesting as well. It, it doesn't, uh, to make the economics, especially for the large district projects, there's opportunities for um, tie-ins from different uh, industries, um, possible tie-in with CCUS, right? As in when you're, because uh, uh, geothermal systems tend to cycle water out and pull heat out of it and put it back in cold. And as they're putting that cold, water back in the ground they could at the same time use carbon to help facilitate that and push that back into the ground and you incorporate it with the ccus system 
Or there's other methods as well where they can team up with uh, companies that work with minerals like uh, E3 lithium to extract uh, lithium from the brine and stuff that comes out of the, uh, the geothermal materials. Uh, and again, all those partnerships come with a balance where, whereas when you, you know, you might lose some heat if you're taking some, some lithium out or, you know, there, right. there could be, you know, some, you know, it's not as simple as just, hey, you can do this, but um, there's opportunities there for sure. Um, and it's, it's, there's lithium, there's, uh, nickel, there's gold, there's silver, there's all sorts of minerals in those brines, um, that, you know, could be extracted and could be, uh, add, uh, you know, added revenue sources to kind of help facilitate the, uh, the economics of the projects and developing those projects. Yeah. I have a follow-up question from something you said, um, just in, I want to say a couple minutes ago. Um, I want to go back to the geothermal energy process of heating the homes yeah so how how does that work not that i don't believe you but can you can you yeah, can you dumb so, it down for me and explain to me yeah, how so um you can use uh something called a heat pump so there's two different kinds of heat pumps there's air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps basically the difference is where they're getting the their air from or their their heat from right um, basically all they are is an air conditioner. We all have heat pumps in our homes. They're in our refrigerators or air conditioners. Um, we tend to use them to, um, use the, the, uh, and get the coldness out of them, but they can be reversed. And so that you're putting, um, instead of, you know, you're getting heat instead of cold, right? So you can reverse that process with a heat pump. Um, and depending on where it's getting its energy source from, um, basically, so if you're using it um, for um, a system um, connect, so like air source heat pump, you're using the like a normal air conditioner would get uh, is gets its air from outside, so it's air source. Um, they're less efficient in northern climates because you're trying to get, let's say, at minus 20, you're trying to pull heat out of minus 20 air mm -hmm. and push more cold air, right? So it's a, it's a little bit less efficient, an air source heat pump. Um, a ground source heat pump, right, in the summertime, you're taking all the heat right, from the air and you're pushing it down low and you're trying and you're converting that into cool air for your house and you're getting air conditioning. And then in the wintertime, when the system switches over, you've got a bunch of heat stored into the ground. And now the system starts pulling heat, air out of the ground. It doesn't, it's not very hot, but even if it's close to zero degrees, right, that's a lot hotter than this outside. And that gives you enough heat that you can, with a little bit of electricity, you can convert that into heat for your house. So there is okay. um, a, a coefficient of, uh, of efficiency for these systems. Right? And uh, a ground source heat pump system has uh, a, a well-designed uh, well, uh, ground source heat pump system has um, basically a four to one ratio. So for every energy of electricity put in, into it, so for the fan and to keep it going, uh, you would get four units of heat energy out of it. Right? So um, they are a big game changer in the uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions um, across the world. From, um, there's a big push to them in Ontario and in uh, New Brunswick and places like that where they're still using a lot of oil heating systems and oil boilers. Um, boilers tend to be a lot easier to switch over than 
Um, and then uh, just our uh, forced air systems we use here in Alberta. So again, that's another little bit of a, an obstacle we have here, but not something that is uh, unsurmountable. Um, there's a bunch of projects. There's, uh, there's uh, buildings, oh, oh, probably a dozen buildings here, right here in Edmonton that use a geo-exchange systems to heat the buildings and stuff like that. Um, I know the city of Edmonton right now is um, in looking at probably doing some more for that for some transit stations. I'm hearing behind the scenes. I'm not sure how official it is yet, but they are in talks with people are putting some for uh, in some of the transit stations and stuff like that. So it would be, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. Um, so it is achievable even it, in this climate. Yeah, it, exactly. So, um, you know, they tend to be geo exchange systems tend to be a little bit more, uh, they're smaller systems and made for smaller spaces. Whereas the direct use geo exchange or geothermal systems, um, that use big drilling rigs, those tend to be for big communities. There's enough heat being pulled out of there that you can send it to a community or to, for industrial uses, for um, you know heating and drying different applications and stuff like that. There's um, you know pulp and paper drying. There's all sorts of different uh, things that uh, can be used with that heat depending on the temperature. So um, in my research, um, I, I talk about that. There's this has been well researched on the applications. So. Um, of geothermal heat. So it's just a matter of the temperature you can get out of it. And um, if you're getting high enough temperatures, um, you can even produce electricity out of it. So mm -hmm. my research kind of eliminated that. I kind of stopped at anything, you know, that uh, is producing electricity. I focused on applications that would eliminate uh, heating in homes and heating, um, just, you know, natural gas heating and uh, other fossil fuel-based heating. In, in Alberta. But it's also good to know that it's, it is like doable here because you think, oh, that wouldn't work for somewhere that's so Northern. But if we can, if we can make it happen. And like you said, the, the sustainable aspect of it. Like, yeah. And so one of the biggest tools for like geo exchange systems is going to be um, like similar what they have for solar panels mm -hmm. where you can um, defer payments, defer the initial upfront costs over um, your tax payments or something like that. Um, uh, there was the PACE program for uh, solar panels, but something similar that includes geothermal systems would really help because it's the upfront investments that's always the, the biggest hurdle for Absolutely. people. And if we can find a way to overcome that upfront investments, these systems, if they're well-designed, can last four or five decades and even longer the in-ground in parts the the pipes themselves can last a hundred years some people have said so i'm you know i'm not a hundred percent sure on that but you know some some people in the industry say you know that they have that kind of lifespan so i'm curious to see you know what comes out of it in the, in the next few decades because these have been around some people have you know you exchange is not new. Right? No, yeah, no, absolutely so, not. So. It's just not very common. And no. you would think that like with the way that we've been moving more towards sustainability, especially in the last couple of, I would say less 10 years, especially, yeah. um, you're, you're still not seeing, like I kind of imagined when I was, you know, in high school <laughs> that I would, by the time I got to university, I'd be seeing so many more people with 
solar panels on their roofs and stuff. And it just seems like it's, it's yeah. really, a, it's slow going for yeah. sure. <laughs> and interestingly enough, like we're, we're doing fairly well for things like solar in Alberta, especially on the commercial scale, right? Well, aren't uh, we the sunniest? We are the sunniest. Right? We have the most solar. Uh, we have the most wind going up. The, the rates of investment in solar in commercial solar and wind in, in Alberta are just amazing. Wow. And we are, um, I believe by 2026, we are going to be at a point where we can, on sunny days and windy days, power our entire grid with solar and wind. Wow. Right. And that's not that far. 2026, that's no. three years. That's three years, dude. I'll see yeah. you there. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's just that many projects that are on the books, just either in the approval process or in the development process. Like they, and these are all, this is not hypothetical. These are on the books already going through the system. Wow. Right? And so that's, it's going to be exciting to see. Uh, and that's just how, because of how we've based our, our, our electric, our electrical system, right? We can have people, you know, organizations come in and big companies that are even not from here, you know, say, we want to buy our power from you and we're going to pay for you to set up a solar farm. We can pay for you to set up uh, a, you know, win. Oh, okay. um, the opportunities aren't quite there for geothermal. Geothermal, right, is a very local, but it also provides an opportunity. This is one of the biggest opportunities for geothermal is it helps bring people to you, right? Um, municipalities have been focused on taking resources and putting them out to the world are going to have to change their mindset a little bit and focus on bringing the world to them, to the resource. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, in environmental tourism is going to be really big for geothermal, um, hot springs and stuff like that can be developed with, with geothermal, right. There's so many opportunities for that, that, that geothermal tourism, uh, greenhouses and, um, the it's it's not it's the ancillary benefits that come with developing a big geothermal project that need to be examined right and that's that's i think where like rainbow lake is looking at doing it right hinton is doing something similar to they have a, a project called latitude 53 that um that is in the works as well um so that's super interesting um so there's a few communities that are that are are looking at it um on on those bigger scales but um yeah, it's 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 still in its infancy. Yeah, for sure. So I want to know what are these upfront costs that we're talking? How uh, how big are we talking? Um, <laughs> well, if you're looking at big projects, it's uh, multi millions of dollars, right? Yeah. Drilling is expensive, um, not just for the drilling rigs, the equipment, and everything like that. Uh, but with all the sour gas in Alberta, like it makes it difficult. There's opportunities for putting a big. Um, uh, so like the University of Alberta has a district heating system already, right? There's an opportunity to convert that to a geothermal system if it wasn't for the fact that we have a whole bunch of sour gas here. And you, from what I've been told through my research, you'd need an, about five kilometer evacuation zone. Oh. So how are you going to install a geothermal system on the U of A campus Right. You have to evacuate five kilometers of population while this is going on. It's not a feasible. Right. So there's opportunities, but because of, you know, most of the opportunities tend to be in new developments. Mm -hmm. Right. So because of those things um, and 
yeah, there's in small communities is they have those opportunities, right? They have those opportunities to, you know, do something a little bit out, a little bit out further and set up some, some, some safety mechanisms and stuff. So, or reuse existing wells and stuff. So that's also being looked at as well. But again, that's, the wells are different sizes. There's, there's still a lot of costs up front there. So. So what about like residentially? Like, is that something, is this something that can be easily retrofitted into an existing home? Or like you said, it has to be sort of a new, newer development as far as you're so aware? So retrofitting into an existing home is not that bad. Um, you, you can do it if you're, um, any, the first thing you need to do is get an energy assessment, first of all, um, and uh, look at your building envelope. That's probably the biggest investment. Um, you can do, um, but they are feasible. Um, most um, smaller drilling rigs, so they are just like a, a water uh, well drilling rig. So geo exchange systems um, that are drilled are um, in Alberta are regulated by the Water Wells Drilling Act and regulations. Um, so they're kind of under that. They're they're a little bit smaller drilling holes. They're smaller drilling rigs. Um, some of them can even fit in people's backyards and in underground parking in parking garages and stuff to to drill underneath those locations. Because they don't go as far, um, they don't have to worry about dealing with H two S. Right, so that increases that feasibility of doing them. But it still requires those drilling costs, and then you have to change because we don't have boiler systems here or um, we then have to change over to, um, uh, you know, a system or use, uh, you know, a system that can convert the, um, the, the heat from one version to the next, right? So they tend to be geothermal, geo-exchange systems still tend to use a fluid to capture that, that heat, right? So it's just more efficient to, to, to absorb that heat that way. So, um, yeah, so that's just, and, you know, it, forced air systems are the hardest to, to change over and, but it's not, it's, it's not it's, impossible. It's not impossible. It's doable. It's maybe a little bit more expensive than if you have an existing boiler system. An existing boiler system is going to save you a little bit of upfront investments, right? Um, you could still, right, you don't have to change from a forced air system to a boiler system. Um, but you, you know, there's there's technologies there that can do both, right? Just like air conditioning, right? So um, you just have to find the, you know, the, the system and just look at costs. So there's a variety of different things. And there's a lot of misinformation as well, just within the industry. There's a lot of people who look at, um, you know, uh, you go ask somebody in HVAC system and say, I want to get uh, a heat pump put in, right? A lot of them will, first thing they think about is an air source heat pump. Right. And then and which are not always efficient. Right. Again, it depends on the house and where you're where you're located and the actual heat pump itself. Right. So um, but there's a lot of hesitation in the industry. Right. Going from a system that sometimes needed if you're using an air source heat pump still needs to be tied into natural gas for supplement, you know, to supplement some of the heat when it gets really cold. Right. And, so you can get hybrid systems that are a little bit less expensive, right? That still reduce your, your carbon footprint as well. So there's a lot of different opportunities out there. It's just, I think we just need more people in the industry to, to, to be on board. Um, and this is even something I found in, in my research, right? The, 
There's a big push that's been going on in the geothermal development and the big development, but the geo exchange has been pretty quiet. They, we don't hear a lot about them in the industry. There's a lot of talks about heat pumps, but they're not. So I think there needs to be more advocacy on the geo exchange side. They need to be a little bit louder. They need to, you know, talk with suppliers and stuff and, you know, and talk with people and, talk with government to try to find policies so that we can get, you know, um, something similar to PACE or even get, you know, geo exchange systems included in the current PACE program, right? Just add it into, you know, as another aspect of it. So there's, yeah, there's opportunities there, but, you know, we need advocates and we need people to to fight for it. And if nobody's fighting for it, these little things are just not going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes a, takes a village. Isn't that what they say? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Most literally in this case. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so yeah. the whole community needs to engage. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Patrick, that is all I have, uh, all the questions I have for today, but is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped it up? Uh, no, not really. Um, I want to say, um, if people are interested about to come to, um, as a student research day, they want to learn a little bit more about my findings, um, or even the honors program, I'd be happy to talk to more people. Um, they are, you know, it is open to public so they can come and see. Um, I look forward to seeing people there. Um, and you know, come tell me you heard me on the podcast. And, <laughs> and know, just remind I, us when student research day is, um, I believe it's March 10th, right? March 10th is the cutoff deadline to apply okay. to, and, but it's in April. I okay. believe it's in April, the actual research day. Um, well, I regardless, we'll yeah, post it in the yeah. description. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to post a, uh, post it in description because, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff at student research day. Um, I was quite pleased every time I've gone, um, from the oral presentations to the poster presentations, there's always something to learn no matter what your interests are there. Absolutely. Oh, well, I will be there. So Excellent. thank you so much, Patrick, for being on the podcast today and talking mm-hmm. to us about that uh, wonderful research. <laughs>Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskinen, and I am here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Haley Hatton. Haley is a student researcher from the Department of Physical Sciences here at McEwen. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Haley. Thank you for having me. So I'm, uh, I'm really interested uh, to, to hear about what you're going to talk about in terms of your research today on the podcast. So can you tell us about your topic and go into it a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, for the past almost year now, I've been uh, researching and looking at the ingestion of microplastics and ring seals from the Eastern Canadian Arctic. And what that pretty much looks like is we would just receive the seal stomachs, I would uh, cut them open, uh, do all the methodology, and then uh, count and quantify uh, the plastics that they're ingesting. Hopefully this will allow um, the Canadian government to uh, take this information and create more legislation and conservation um, to the Arctic, especially around uh, marine pollutants. That is very, very interesting. Um, So a lot to unpack there. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to know what inspired you to move forward with a project like this and what inspired you, I guess, to, to research it and actually start your own study on this? Yeah. Um, so 
Last year or two years ago, I was involved in a 498, an independent study. Um, and during that study, we weren't looking at microplastics at all. And I was just doing stomach content analysis on just freshwater fish here in Alberta, Lac La Biche. And to, well, our surprise, but not really, um, we found plastics in these fish, which is not something that uh, was recorded in Lac La Biche. So that kind of opened the door of okay, uh, freshwater fish are ingesting these plastics. So the same prof um, approached me and was like, hey, um, I all have all these invertebrates now um, from these freshwater environments. Why don't we look into seeing what they're ingesting for plastics? So I did a little kind of trial run trying to figure out the methodology for that. And during that time, um, Matthew Ross um, approached me and he's like, hey, you've kind of dived into all these microplastic stuff with freshwater. How do you feel about marine mammals? And I'm like, yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, I want to be a marine biologist. So uh, I was like, yes. So that's what kind of got me started in this project. I was originally supposed to be doing uh, zooplankton, uh, investigating zooplankton in the Arctic. But we ended up not getting the samples. So I got chosen to do the seals. So I'm like, oh, this is actually really cool. Uh, it's okay that we didn't get the zooplankton samples. So it was kind of like, um, I didn't know it was going to happen until it was happening. Um, but yeah, I think getting your foot into the door and just uh, talking to your lab professors about what you're interested in really opened the door for this project for me. Yeah, just sort of uh, you know immersing yourself in the courses and the material. And obviously you by the way you speak of it, I feel like you've maybe always wanted to be a marine biologist. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you have that passion and you have that drive already. And so just communicating it um, to the professors, like you said, really yeah. opened that opportunity. So um, so you, you analyzed some of these fish and you went on to, you said zooplankton, correct yeah, me if or, I'm wrong? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so then how did you, how did you, how did it start with just looking at seal stomachs? Also, I want to know what the process is like. Like yeah. you get them in a jar, like what? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. So I wasn't involved in taking them out of the water and bringing them into the lab. That was other students. Um, I just did all the lab portion. And um, the thing about plastics, everyone talks about it. It's such a huge thing thing that everyone knows about, but the science behind it is still in its infancy, I would say. Uh, so we're just constantly reading papers. Um, there's a new paper that comes out every year that just changes the methodology. Um, so we took a really long time trying to figure out how do we get the microplastics out of the animal and into like a filter for us to look at. And that's really hard when there's microplastics everywhere, like in the air, in the water. So there's a lot of contamination, a lot of care when we handle these environmental samples. But I guess what the process looks like is we have these very tiny dudes in a jar and we um, put them in a chemical. Um, potassium hydroxide is what I used. And then they sit there and dissolve for a couple days. Usually if you add heat, they'll dissolve quicker. And then pretty much until they're all goop, you would just filter every all that goop through. And what you should have left on this filter is just only the anthropogenic particles that were in the animal. So then we could say that we can't know if it, it was ingested by the animal or if it was taken up by another animal they ate, the plastic. But we'd be able just to see internally um, what they're 
what they have in their bodies. So then I'd be able to look at them, like go through a microscope and then be able to pinpoint um, the plastic, pull it out um, of the filter, and then we're able to something called Raman microscopy. And this shoots like a little laser at the particle and it tells us if it's a plastic or not. So the chemical composition. So that's kind of the gist of how the methodology works. We digest all the material, we filter it all through, and then we just pick through the microplastics. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, before I get too ahead of myself uh, into the actual what you did and, and all that jazz, uh, I think we need to talk about microplastics. I think we need to tell everybody what microplastics are and uh, explain, I guess, the impact that they can have. Yes. Um, so microplastics are plastic or anthropogenic materials um, that are less than five millimeters in length. And they can either be made like those microbeads um, that we've seen before um, to be under five millimeters, or they could be like bigger plastic products. And then as they weather and go through the ocean currents and just go through the process of plastic life, they'll start to break down and turn into smaller and smaller pieces. Um, right now, we are very concerned about microplastics um, because now we've, uh, we now know that almost all marine organisms now ingest plastics, um, humans now ingest plastic. It's in every ecosystem on Earth, including the remote regions of the Arctic and Antarctic. So um, it's everywhere. Um, however, we don't understand fully the health impacts yet of plastics. So that's kind of where the research hopefully is going in the future. Um, but and nanoplastics in the future as they continue to break down are, is gonna be very interesting to see. Um, but yeah, as for it's everywhere <laughs> and we know not much about it. We think we do, I think, on like the surface level, but like on a scientific level, we don't know much about it. So um, I'm very interested in just communicating the process of what studying microplastics looks like. And it's just, it's not just, you know, looking through and just picking everything. It's, it's a whole process that needs to be refined, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some products that we could find these microplastics in? Like oh. You said beads, so I'm thinking like face washes and stuff. Yeah, so the Canadian government thankfully has banned microbeads. Um, however, uh, I would say that the biggest pollutant right now of microplastics would be microfibers and that's just the stuff on our clothes really so like acrylic clothing exactly yeah, okay. so textile fibers so if you're washing your clothes you're you're just throwing hundreds of plastics just into our like freshwater systems right there's also um my prof also looked at uh, runoff so what does a rain what does rainwater like one rainfall how much plastics is that bringing into a waterway? So as we're moving about in the world, it's not just the food packaging, you know, it's the clothes on our back. It's the, you know, the lab equipment, it's our cell phones, it's everything, it's everywhere. And, um, luckily, thankfully the government, uh, just put in that plastic ban. Yes. Um, this year, which is great. Um, it's, it does something, which is great, and getting the knowledge around like recycling and stuff works, but only, you know, only 7% of things get recycled right now. So we have to find a way of figuring out a better way to manage our waste management systems, right? Because plastic right now isn't going away. 
Yeah. No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, we've tried and we've, we've, you know, you're seeing stores are stopping offering uh, Mm -hmm. plastic bags and stuff, but that's really just scratches the surface barely. Yeah. And we're looking at like, and it's interesting too, because it's not just uh, like plastics per se. There's also cotton fibers and um, more natural, like hemp fibers still in the environment. Um, Those aren't really being researched right now, but it'd be interesting to see like, what natural fibers are also being shed and being ingested by these organisms as well. So it's not just man-made plastics, it's the just pollutants in general. Of, yeah. yeah. These fibers, it's crazy. <laughs> so when you're looking in these stomachs or these stomach contents, yeah. what, whatever, uh, what, what, what are you finding? Are you finding quite a bit? are you finding and how are you categorizing them, I guess? Yeah, so when it comes to smaller organisms, uh, of course you're gonna find smaller microplastics. So with zooplankton, for example, um, you're not gonna find really anything until you're in the microscope doing the thing. Um, For seals specifically, um, an extra step is involved where, you know, it's a big stomach with lots of content. So we had to run it, all the contents through a series of sieves of different sizes and, once all the contents are out, you go through each sieve to just double check, make sure there's no bigger plastic pieces. And luckily, we haven't found any. There was no large pieces over a thousand micrometers that we found. Um, so that was great. Um, as for results right now, we're still going through. Um, I would say that they are ingesting plastics. Um, this is going to be other researchers um, have found none, have found microfibers, but. It's hard to say if it's contamination or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, I mean, every organism in the Arctic is ingesting plastics. Um, it's almost bound to be ring seals as well. So it's good that the bigger plastics, they're maybe able to see and avoid, but it's just those microplastics that they're ingesting either from their prey that are also eating it or just their mouth gape is so wide that they could also be ingesting it as well. Yeah, like while they're trying to catch exactly. it or whatever. Yeah. So uh, when you get these seal stomachs, like how are these collected, I guess? Like are mm-hmm. these seals that have passed on or or how yeah. does that work? Yeah, so this is a amazing project because it's super collaborative. That's why I love it so much. Uh, so we, uh, or Arviet, so the, the seals that we have are from Arviat and Resolute Bay, Nunavut. And the hunters and trappers of those communities actually um, go out and hunt seals on a regular basis. Um, that's a re- regular subsidence that they eat. So they have a collaboration with Environment Canada. And so when they're, so they'll just go out and hunt and then whatever they want to donate to Environment Canada, they will. So they donated all of the stomachs to us, um, thankfully. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, and then we just took over the project from there in the lab. And then once the lab's done, we'll be able to come back together and and talk about what we've discussed and move forward from there. So um, these hunters are very, very, like they need this food source. So it's very important that they take the role of um, giving us the samples that they would like us to go through and also just exchanging that scientific knowledge and traditional knowledge I think is very important as well. So, yeah, they're constantly just hunting um, these seals and then they will just donate what they can. That's amazing. So how yeah. did you, like, did the government of Canada sort of start that or how did that 
collaboration come to? Yeah, so there's a huge program that just got started. I think it's called the Northern Contaminants Program. So they just put a lot of money into doing a bunch of research in all the different contaminants that could be found in the Arctic, DDT, um, fire retardants, all that stuff. And microplastics was just added as an emerging concern in the Arctic. So that's why these ring seals were brought to our university. Um, they have been looking at microplastics with ring seals for the past couple of years, um, but just with the amount of plastics that we're finding just in the surface waters is increasing, they want to have that continuous monitoring um, just to get a baseline of what we're dealing with and so we can figure out how to deal with it. So. We're, my prof is in collaboration with the government of Canada, so they're taking on the, like, the support of, so we're doing the methodology, finding out the results, and then we'll go to Environment Canada and discuss what these results mean for mm -hmm. the Arctic, for the species, for Inuit health, right? And then we'll go, and, and then that will go to, like, the more legislative side of things. How can we reduce plastics mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that? So it's huge. Yeah, like are, it, there, are there others we need to focus on more? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And there's way more organisms. Like at this point, we could also start looking at polar bears since polar bears eat ring seals, right? So I mean, this project could just go a million different directions, but yeah. So uh, in, in terms of your, your, your own research study, what uh, what stage are you at now? Like, what are what have you been able to find out, and what have you been able to? I guess are you able to deduce or make any sort of conclusions based on your findings that yeah. you want to talk about? Yeah. So we have dissected all the stomachs. We have gone through all of the stomach contents, as in um, just looking at them. Um, so we filtered everything. Um, so there's no more stomach contents left other than they're just all on a small, tiny filter. <laughs> um, so we're at the point now where we're just, I'm just eight hours a day, just on the microscope, picking out plastics, and then we'll be able to ramen them to see their chemical composition. Then, uh, we're probably going to look into like doing the stats research and all that fun stuff. Um, as for results right now, um, can't, I don't want to be like, yes, there's plastics and seals because we don't 100% know that yet. Uh, like I mentioned, like contamination is crazy. So we have to figure out a way to either reduce the contamination or deduct the contamination that we're finding. So we have to go through blanks as well and figure out, okay, well, how many microplastics are in the air that could have ended up in our sample? What about in our water system? So that's going to be a huge process. However, um, I will admit I have found microplastics in, this, in the seal stomachs from both locations, majority of which are fibers and fragments and are darker in color, so around black or blue, which is pretty actually normal with other studies. Um, a lot of these plastics uh, actually, interestingly, don't come from Canada a lot of the time. They end up coming from countries way out, west and the ocean ocean currents bring it up to the arctic so it's actually really hard to figure out what these particles are hmm. like could they be tire wear could they be paint off ships could it be fishing wire it's really hard to tell but as long as we know like is it polyester is it polypropylene then we can maybe get an idea of the types of plastics that are ending up in these um waterways and uh going from there so they are ingesting plastics, unfortunately, um, and it's just, 
at what extent, we just don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it kind of creates a larger issue, uh, just going back to what you mentioned about the, you know, whatever they eat might have had the plastics. Then when you mentioned the Inuit community that are actually hunting these seals, you know, to live, that this is a main food source for them. And, and what impact that could have down the line. And we're all eating fish yeah. on the regular. I, I've never eaten a seal, but, <laughs> but you know, like we, we eat seafood here and stuff. So who knows what kind of implement that could have later on. And I know it's in the, in, you know, in its infancy in yeah. terms of, of the actual, like what, what could this mean? But I think the research that you're doing is really important because you're sort of paving that step. Like, okay, I did all this. I was able to find all this. Is it bad? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone else tell me. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. But that's amazing that you were able to sort of do that. So um, I, I want to talk about y- some of the awards you've gotten. So so use this as your plug. Let's let's brag a little here. <laughs> sure. I, I, <laughs> Why not? Um, sure. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was really fortunate enough for this study to uh, get a USRI and a USRA for this. And uh, this is... I mean, it was crazy. It was a really cool experience just to be a research assistant and just see what that life is about because I know what a student is. I know what sitting in a classroom is like. Um, but just to get into the field a little bit more was really nice. And it really, um, I like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, <laughs> you know? Like, um, so yeah, I'm really happy to get those awards. And then, uh, Actually, I was really fortunate to also go to Winnipeg for the Canadian Toxicity Conference, um, I think last October, to present my tentative results to the um, national like community. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was great. Um, people were super interested, of course, in the research and just seeing um, what, like, everyone's kind of interested in the Arctic, I find. It's like this wonder of the world. Yeah, because so, it's not that accessible. Exactly, right? So um, I'm finding there's a lot of popularity in the study, and I'm finding I'm very fortunate that people are so interested in learning about it. Uh, I love talking about it. Um, so it's just been a really awesome privilege just to, you know, be able to also travel, get the lab experience, also make the connections within the faculty too, and just other faculties. Um, it's been really great. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. it sounds like it. And just by the look on your face, you know, I know this is a podcast, but I'm telling you, there's a huge smile sitting across from me <laughs> talking about all of this. Um, so it sounds like you've had a pretty positive experience overall in this. And uh, you mentioned you mentioned this uh, just a minute ago, but this is something you think you want to continue on with is further research. I know the end goal is marine biology, but even possibly just continuing research with that title. Yeah, and it's also something interesting you bring up is, yes, it's such a interesting, and I, I love this project. It brings me so much joy, but it also brings up some really not-so-fun topics as well. So reading a lot of these papers and just looking at, I wouldn't say, like, the destruction, but, like, just policy failures and stuff like that, it could be really hard to go through a day and just, thinking like, oh, well, you know, I wish I wasn't doing this. I wish I wasn't picking plastics out of a seal stomach, right? So you kind of got to, I don't know, it's like you got to take a break and just, just thank, I don't know, the environment for just doing what it's doing. And it's very resilient. Yeah, it's very resilient. Very. So it's, it comes with, yes, this, there's so much joy in this research, but it's also, you got to 
just take what you can and just it's, it's a I've, lot. I've had a lot of eco grief a lot with these projects, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's been that's been just a transition as well as figuring out like what am, what is my relationship to the environment, you know, outside of this lab space. So yeah, it's just a lot bigger than I thought it would be and um yeah, and then it just encourages me to go even further for that and pursue a master's or something. And it might not be in marine plastics either, but something in the oceans. I've been too landlocked for too long. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it sounds like, you know, with this eco grief, like as, as sad as that is and as, um, as not, not damaging, but it, it has affected you a little bit. Um, I want to say that it's maybe given you that drive, though, yeah. to push forward and this study, although can be um, uh, can get you down a little bit sometimes, filtering these plastics out of stomachs, um, probably raised a lot more ideas and questions to come out of this for future exactly. projects. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. I would. I would really like to. I don't know how this would work. I don't know if I have the education for it. But to look into the health impacts of plastics. Um, in specifically marine mammals. I think that'd be really interesting to go look into further. But yeah, I, I, I never would have thought like four years coming into my degree, I would be doing <laughs> microplastic stuff. But here I am enjoying my life. So yeah, I would just say like for any students who are interested in research, just honestly, if you have an idea, approach somebody about it. Yeah. Um, there's so many profs here that are willing to listen to your ideas and just roll with it. So just do it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing advice. So uh, before we go, um, I just wanted to know what the future looks like to you. What are you, um, what do you have upcoming? Are you talking more about this project anytime soon or yeah. where can we, where can we come to get some more? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll be presenting hopefully all of my results um, at Stu Student Research Day in April. And from there, I am not quite sure. Hopefully we'll start writing a thesis for it and get that published um, and from there I'm graduating this semester. Congratulations. So, thank you. Um, so I'll be taking some time off uh, the pandemic. Oof. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll be taking some time off and just to work and just gain that experience outside the university space yeah. and yeah and then just discover what life holds after that. Fantastic. Yes. Well I look forward to seeing what you get up to certainly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Haley. We really uh, enjoyed your learning about your, your studies. Hello, welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I am Megan Miskimen, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Kiana Kruger. Kiana is a third-year student in the Bachelor of Early Childhood and Curriculum Studies program here at McEwen University. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Kiana. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, so, man, early childcare. Yeah. That's quite the topic that you chose to get into, hey? Yeah, uh, I've always had a passion for working with children and especially younger children. Like, since I was younger, I was always good with, like, younger children and taking care of babies and stuff. <laughs> um, and then... I engaged in through a couple of volunteer experiences through high school and junior high, dealing with helping out um, people less fortunate. And part of that was volunteering in a childcare. And then that kind of started 
my passion to wanting to do more. So then I um, took a year off after high school, started working at a daycare and loved every second of it. Um, You're brave. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, re- I didn't want to go into like education solely. I wanted to do something different because mm-hmm. I didn't like that structure. Um, you, McEwen had a program info session about the Bex program because it's like brand new. Um, that's they just started introducing it as a degree. So then I took that and it just spoke to me. And then I was like, why not? <laughs> and then ever since I've loved every year and every semester and all the courses I'm taking. <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you just, you were one of the lucky ones. You just, you knew what your yes, passion was. I was lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's rad. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the research you've been doing. You're, you're in your third year mm-hmm. of your, of your degree now. So yes. when did this project start and, and tell us sort of, you know, what inspired you to, to take this, this journey? So last semester I was taking a flat families uh, in glo- global context and my professor, she brought the idea forward to making an assignment more community engaged. And so me and my group, we took on a project uh, that was seeking to find out the needs after COVID from families. And that was with the C5 Hub. And then through that research project, we like put out surveys and we visited like the local food market where they like provide food for families that need it. And then we talked with individuals and found information through that and put together a summary. And then near the end of the semester, that's when uh, my professor offered the opportunity to join her CanPlay Lab research team. And then that's where it led into um, this Loose Parts Play project. And so we're looking into exploring how children play with loose parts indoors, but my research more focuses on the parent-child relationships and how that varies across like cultures and whether if social factors influence what kind of play is produced and how long people or how long parents and children are engaged in that play. It's very rewarding and work that can, as you mentioned, because it's cross-cultural, can stretch mm-hmm. across uh, internationally even. Yes. Um, so I, I just want to go back to a couple terms. What is mm-hmm. uh, oh yes? What is uh, the, the first project you mentioned? You you used a, her lab. What did you say her lab her was lab. called? It's Can Play Lab. Okay, it's, so what what is that? It's is a that? research or research lab in McEwen, and it focuses on examining play with young children and just kind of understanding the role of play and how educators can support their practices to. Um, support children and their development. That's awesome. I didn't mm-hmm. even realize we had that here. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Is that real kids? Like that people drop off as like a real yeah. daycare sort of thing? Is that is that what it is? Yeah. So we're working with some community organizations. And with that, the research team was placed in like different centers. And we just go for a certain time and families either register or we just kind of promote it if there's no families there. Hmm. And then they just come and then we do our thing and um, just ask some questions and learn more about the, the parent and the child. And then we, the main focus really is um, seeing how they play with two different uh, sets of toys and it's like randomized. The one box is very close-ended 
And then the second box is open, open-ended materials, so loose parts. So it's everyday materials you can find like within your house. So loose parts is like accessible. Like, yes, right. Super accessible, affordable. Like it's not something you go out to the store and buy oh, okay. something called loose parts. It's just uh, abundance of materials that you can find. And then there's like do like blocks. There's also like natural materials, so like pine cone, rocks. But, I, that, but that helps us. It's something mm-hmm. that you wouldn't typically go out and buy at the yes. store. No, it's like anything okay. in your house. Like that's cool. But so what our kind of focus is trying to see which materials are the most engaging and then to put together a little, I'd say like handout. So then to inform like a broader audience of this is the materials that we found most engaging and this is like the play that was produced. Because then we'll be examining how that is more engaging compared to close-ended. Right. So the close-end is a puzzle. So it's like we're trying to evaluate both. Just because uh, loose part play is highly recognized in our in the early education field, it's it's been I think outdoor loose part play has been researched, actually giving like this is the benefits that come from it. People like educators and adults that are within the field know the benefits that come from it, but we're trying to provide like you're trying to provide the proof, I guess. Yes, right? the proof. The, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. Loose parts play, uh, what what have you been able to find out of this? Like, what have you been able to share? You, you said you make you make one-pagers to, to take home for the caregivers mm-hmm. and family members. So what are you guys finding if you're able to share any mm-hmm. of that versus, you know, closed? So, did you call it closed parts? Closed-ended. Closed-ended, yeah. thank you. <laughs> uh, so right now it's just, um, there. we haven't had, like, this is what we found yet because um, we're still in the, that process. Mm. Okay, so still building on that, but my I'm also taking a research course. My research is focusing on what does diversity do and looking at parent engagement and the role they take on with their children during this uh, loose part play and also incorporating background factors of the parents and examining or exploring how it's different in varying cultures and how as educators, how can we support that difference? And mm. then so bringing that home learning um, and bridging the gap from into the center. So taking the ways that they play at home and implementing them into the center. Oh, that's awesome. So just awesome. kind of like insights to that. Yes. Yeah. So the where did your... Um, like I understand how you got into the the lab there. Mm-hmm. Where did you find um, this need to to research intercultural play? I guess. Yeah, it kind of started during first couple of years in the Bex program, and also working in centers and realizing that the stuff we're learning in this degree it's super beneficial and it's like high quality and just very positive about supporting children children and like children's development and play but then when you go into centers and you work there there's very clashing values and beliefs Mm -hmm. so as a student and going into a new center you feel kind of like you don't have a voice even though you have so many good ideas now (laughs) and then so I kind of just noticed that it was undermined and 
that's kind of where like my passion started growing and I knew I wanted to do more. Kiana, you you mentioned that you uh, have this interest in cross-cultural play and the importance of, you know, Canada is a very, very much a melting pot when it comes to cultures. Um, so maybe touch on that a little bit. And, and, and yeah. you've told us you identified this need here. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. It kind of follows my passion of traveling and also through those volunteer experiences. And in high school, I got to go to Colombia, um, Medellin, Colombia. And it was for a rugby tour, but the focus was gathering everyday materials to use. So like shampoo, conditioner, toothbrushes, like socks, underwear. We brought probably like two huge duffel bags like across across the world it was it was a long travel and wow. then, yeah <laughs> and that's kind of like that's kind of like the trip where it just opened opened up my heart to recognizing what's out there and how many different experiences people go through so that kind of like ignited my passion to exploring more yeah, and how yeah. to bring all these different cultures and ways of life into my practices. Last May and June, I went to Bali for a month and I was, did a construction program and we were building an elementary school and just experiencing their way of life, again, added to my passion and it was the, a beautiful trip and so heartwarming, but so heartbreaking at the same time, just seeing the experience that are their normal. I want to be able to take my knowledge and insights from this degree and then travel to countries and not tell them like this is right, this is wrong, but just inform them on what I know, but then also gain experiences from their practices and ways of life and bringing that back to Canada. Yeah, for more cultures to understand yeah. and other, because we have so many, as I mentioned before, we're such a a mixing, uh, sorry, a melting pot mm -hmm. uh, here. Uh, it, it really will be something that, that is beneficial for a community like ours because we have so much uh, intercultural communities here. We mm -hmm. have so many of them. Um, have you had any of that experience already in, in your daycare, uh, the time you've worked in daycares in the lab? Have you, have you noticed a difference in, um, or rather like, have you noticed, I guess, anything that sticks out to you about children from another culture who are entering mm -hmm. this culture and playing, maybe children that are more school-aged who are coming after already playing for several years in another culture? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Through this BEX program, I had experiences in daycares that were very meaningful to my learning because it provided an opportunity to work with teen moms, but understanding their culture and where they come from was very meaningful. I'm from St. Albert, and when I work in uh, St. Albert centers, there's not a lot of culture variety. And then seeing how school-aged children play sometimes, they're very, sometimes it's very not wanting to be in daycare. Right, because, like they've already learned. Yeah. yeah right. Yes. And then having, working with, um, younger children we have in our centers here compared to other centers is very interesting. 
So what about, what about, uh, tell us a little bit about the event in Scotland that you got invited to speak at. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be speaking to them about? And uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. I kind of touched on it before, but um, it's called the International Play Association Conference. And it's held every year, but in varying countries. And this year it was in Scotland. So with joining the Can Play Lab Research I was able to have this opportunity. I'll be taking this research that I'm doing currently and presenting about it, the parent engagement and roles that come from different cultures, economic status, and kind of just addressing that sometimes what we view as quality can be different in a different country. So the UNCRC, so the United Nations Convention Rights of a Child. And it was mostly negative indicators, which kind of surprised me because I was like, it may be negative to us, that may not be negative that country. Right. So so I just kind of went on that tangent of, but what if that's like, well, that's their normal, so... But but totally, like you you open a really good question there, mm-hmm. good research question, right? Is what is culturally relevant to us may be culturally crazy to others, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I'm from a multicultural household. My mother was raised in Africa and my father was raised here. And raising me was a struggle for them <laughs> because <laughs> they came from completely different households, right? My My mom went to an all-girls, you know, French Catholic school, wore a uniform, got slapped by nuns. Mm-hmm. My dad, you know, was a party guy in the 70s here. And yeah. <laughs> right, it's different here. So that can totally, totally change um, the way that a child, or, or rather affect the way that a child is brought up and the way they engage and the way they engage in play. Mm. Um, you know, maybe some kids play with strings and you think, oh, that poor kid, they don't have any real toys. And yeah. it's like, I mean... My little brother played with strings. We had yeah. all these beautiful toys for him, and he didn't want anything to do mm-hmm. with them. So, so that's that's kind of what loose parts is exactly. Is. And even I also I work at a restaurant as a server, and it was during this event, and the children had these like table of toys, but like manufactured toys and like coloring books, and it came in a cardboard box. Or all I see was the tables of toys not being touched, and that cardboard box was used for so many things and when I was watching one of the boys says come on guys like hop in my rocket ship so you make a rocket ship from a cardboard box when you have like all these different toys so that's kind of what is recognized as loose part play that's awesome Mm -hmm. that's a concept I never really like when you tell it to me now in front of me I'm like (laughs) yeah I can recognize that all the time but I never had a word for it right Mm -hmm. I thought you know, oh, yeah, just playing with whatever. Yeah. But, oh, so uh, what are some examples uh, that you've found, if any, of loose parts play across cultures? Like, is, are there differences? Do kids from varying cultures tend to play with the same type of loose parts? Are there ones that are more popular? It honestly varies with every child. But <laughs> so all, all the children are so engaged in the loose parts because you can do anything and everything from them. Right. It's like what fuels their imagination. And I actually did a presentation last semester that I'm now doing for an event in in middle of March about an idea that matters in early childhood education, and that's imagination. 
and loose part play is a powerful tool for that. You want to maybe tell us a little bit about what your experience um, as a student researcher, as an undergraduate mm-hmm. student researcher here, and in your third year too um, yeah. at McEwen has been. My third year has been insane. Um, my first two years were kind of, well, first year was solely online. I learned a lot of good information, but you don't really get that connection with everybody in the class and with the professors as you would in person. But I didn't have that previous knowledge to know that was what it was like. So probably near the end of second year, I really started to see that the professors care for you. When you show that you care about your learning, they'll show it back and they will go over and beyond for you. And then, so I started putting more effort into my schooling and that got more recognized. But I've been with the same class for the past couple of semesters. Mm -hmm. So we just know each other, we get each other and wanting to promote early childhood education, especially because it's not very valued. And I think that's where also my passion comes from is because we're seen as like babysitters or just like, oh, that taking care of children, that's so easy. So when we're not valued by society, then that kind of hurts. Well, especially because you, you, have, you have these tools, like mm-hmm. you went to school to learn take care of and take care of is is basically an umbrella term for term for nurture and mm-hmm. grow and imp- encourage like these children and it's a very important role that i agree with you is not actually mm-hmm. seen as it's not put in as high of a regard as i think it should be either in society i agree with you there mm-hmm. um and and it's actually one of the more important ones i think because you're entrusting somebody with your children mm-hmm. when you're away from them. When yeah. you cannot have the time to nurture them yourselves, you need to find someone you can trust to do it. You yeah. Know? So it's, I, I hear you there. Yes. It's, it's Yeah. It kind of, just realizing that this research is kind of like a stepping stone in like my future path and goals. I'm going to be honest, I did not know the difference between a master's degree and a PhD until like probably a couple months ago <laughs> when my professor explained it. I was like, oh, nice. <laughs> but that's good because you're mm-hmm. opening, like you're a person, like you said, you've already sat on this podcast. You love to travel. You love to open yourself up to new experience. And that's exactly what you're doing here mm-hmm. is you're opening yourself up to all these new opportunities so that you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I, yes. <laughs> I'm very dedicated to what I do and I'm actually working with another professor on a, different research projects. Well, Kiana, that's pretty much all the questions I have for you, but is there anything else before we wrap up today that you would like to add? I just want to stress that this research opportunity through um, my professor has been amazing. It's allowing me to travel to an international conference to speak to a lot of people. And I was actually interviewed about the community engaged project and like end of December and like the article was just just published. Oh, fantastic. That was about our community work with the C5 hub and then this experience (laughs) Um, and then being able to present on a brand new event that they're holding for the early childhood education field. So like that's where ELM comes in. Do we know ELM? No, early, what is now? Early learning at McEwen. 
Ah. Like it's our daycare or daycare center. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're presenting and then the third years. So us are presenting our ideas that matter because our professor was like, no, these ideas are important and they need to be heard. And so she took the extra step and got grant funding and organized this whole event for us. And then hopefully being able to speak at McEwen Research Day and getting that public speaking as I need a lot of practice. But becoming just each event makes me more passionate for what I'm doing and kind of see the bigger picture of what kind of impact I'll be able to make. Because during the process, you're, it doesn't really show sometimes mm-hmm. just because of everything, life stuff. <laughs> but then being able to talk about it and actually hearing your voice, I'm like, oh, yeah, what I'm doing is important. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's excellent, Kiana. I, I really want to thank you for being on our show today and sharing your experience here and your research. Uh, it is important. So thank Thank you you for having me. (laughs) Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow or send us a message if you have any follow up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskimen and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Megan Miskimen, and our executive producer is Ray Barry. 